I started getting bigger remix opportunities. The biggest one that dropped, there were two huge ones that dropped on my plate. One was the Katy Perry remix that I did of California Girl. That one, it didn't get picked up for the actual release of Katy Perry, but it did get picked up from all of her like remix fan pages and the Universal Music Group page. You're listening to Hawk Talk, a podcast all about the origin stories of the most interesting people in the world. Today, you know our guests as famous athletes, authors, and entrepreneurs, but there's so much more to this story. Let's get into today's interview with your host, Eric Huberman. All right, you're listening to Hawk Talk. I'm here today with DJ Bender. How are you, man? Oh, man, I'm doing great. So happy to be here. Thanks for having me, Eric. Yeah, of course. Thanks for coming. So got to kick it off. I assume you're born, you hit the delivery room, you start recording some vocals, producing the whole situation and getting a track laid down, right? That's how it started from day one. Man, I wish, man, you know, like, you know, that would be the, that would be the best rollout for sure. Yeah, Yeah. it's been, it's been a process, you know, uh, you know a bit my story, but you know, before all your listeners, um, you know, had a kind of a background of, um, of composition, learned piano. Um, and, um, you know, for a long time, I was still finding my journey with what I really wanted to do. I played in a few bands. We played some music together when we were kids, which is always great. Yeah. And, and, and well, let's take um, it back before all of that. So you're from uh, Brooklyn, right? Born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. Yep. Um, also, you know, L.A. came out during high school. And, and so I, in New York, school, how was that like? What were your parents doing? Like, how was that early childhood like? What were you focused on? Like, what did you want to be when you grew up when you were like four? Yeah, so I went to a um, kind of like a, a, a private conservatory slash magnet school where they did have a lot of emphasis on the arts. So this when you I were was, like middle, middle, like four yeah, or five this years was like, old. This was like middle school even. And okay, even but what in, about prior to that? I'm curious, like the really that, early days. Yeah, like well, really like I, four or five years old. So four or five years old, I, my mother was very important to her that I played piano, that I played an instrument, period. Yeah. She was always, you know, very eclectic with music. She played acoustic guitar. She could sing. Her, my mother's dream was always to be a background singer for Bonnie Raitt, which is <laughs> random, which is a sort of like random '60s reference. But you know, so I grew up in this musical space, um, and my father appreciated music as well. He was not a musician, but he played classical music all the time. There was always you know '80s rock music being played. So as a child, I was you know always surrounded by this musical energy. And yeah. growing up in Park Slope, Brooklyn. I think you remember I played in a lot of those drum circles. That was also like something. Really oh, I didn't know that actually. Yeah, I, I played like the conga and I played the djembe and my mother was fantastic at it. Yeah. She would have these really, these sort of, these friend, you know, hangout sessions where they would play and then they would actually have performances at Prospect Park, which is a huge park in, in Brooklyn. So piano and drums were integral parts of my musical upbringing. And, you know, it, was a lot of a lot of that, a lot of jazz background. Um, you know, I loved all types of music as a kid, everything from hip hop to film scores to rock. And you know, for a long time, I tried to do the band thing, which was kind of difficult, especially because I moved when I was a kid from New York, like out to L.A. So I lost contact with some people that I was playing music with. And yeah. when I got to L.A., I had a couple different bands. And you but said I, you were just real quick. You were about thirteen when you came that way. Yeah, originally. Yeah, originally was thirteen. But if you remember, kind of was going back and forth for a while. My father yep. was out here. My mother was still on the East Coast. Yeah, and so for the audience, so everyone knows, place. like yeah. our grandmothers were best friends when they were five. So we do go yes. back. But, we go back, y'all. <laughs> so I know a little bit of the story, but I actually don't know the full story. We've never, you know, it's not often. Even with your close friends, you sit down and like, how did this all come together? 
totally. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, L.A. was uh, and the West Coast was something that I spent time visiting uh, even earlier than that. But I didn't really fully get settled into like my high school years. And that's when I started, you know, I went to New Roads and I, you know, really kind of and that was really good for me because the transition from New York out to L.A. was hard. But I was able to find this center in doing music. And that's what kind of brought me peace and, and brought me a sense of belonging out in the West Coast. Um, going back to New York, in terms of the upbringing, like, were you just focused on music or did you have other things you th- like? Did you think you were going to grow up and be a musician from a young age in New York? To a degree, but I also, as you know, had interest in business. I had interest in other things. I had interest in history and a lot of interest in politics. And I was raised by two parents who were very politically active in the 60s. So um, I had a lot of academic interests as well. But uh-huh. music was always something that was pushed by my mother. She believed in my talent more than anyone. And yeah. it was very important to her that I continued to always be pursuing my music. So I yeah. didn't actually see a career in music for a long time in my life, actually. Uh-huh. Uh, that came much later. I always thought I was good, but I didn't feel like at the time I had the self-confidence to really believe in myself as like a professional musician. And so, you know, when I what really changed was when I came out to L.A., I started one. I started with a different band, but when the band situation fizzled out, I became very close with my jazz teacher in high school out in LA, whose name I think you know, Emanuele Arnone, who I still want you to meet at some point. He's a dear, <laughs> dear friend and mentor. And um, Emanuele at the time was doing film scores and working with digital music equipment. And I was just what like, was that? this had to have been like 1998, 97, yeah, digital music equipment. Like that was the year it came out. Like it was like brand new. Yeah. Yeah. And I tell that a lot to like younger producers. Well, or I, I we're actually, our generation is this really fascinating generation where we literally came up in the birth of like MIDI and like home digital audio, you know? Yeah. And we, and I kind of became a producer during the time when we literally had to like have all outboard gear and run cables to play everything. And now everything is internal. So I I got to see and work through that transition, which was huge, obviously, for the industry. Yeah. So at the time, Eamon Welly was on the cutting edge of this. You know, he was he was even older than myself, but he really understood this. And I started realizing, wait a second, I have some of the skill sets to make music. I play drums, I play keys, and I don't really have found a consistent band situation. And I really want to do this all on my own because I wanted to make electronic music. And I really also wanted to make hip hop music. Yeah. So that was sort of like when he was like, well, you need to learn about MIDI. I mean, you need to learn about this new thing called MIDI where you can yeah. make all the instruments at home. And I was like, what? This is crazy. He's like, yeah, I'm going to help you. You need to load sounds. You need to do this. And at the time, you know, making music, you know, was painstaking. I always have so much affinity and admiration for the composers like Van Gelis, who made the score Blade Runner, which I know is both one of our yeah. movies that we love. Blade Runner is a brilliant movie. I mean, I don't think people understand just the work that it took at that time to create such electronic sounds because everything was outboard. So there was no like cutting and editing or just make a, you know, turning a few dials in the software and it sounds yeah. good. You had to do everything over and over and over again, the whole performance to get it to sound right. So, yeah. so yeah, so I started uh, working with this equipment. I set up a little, very simple home studio with a Korg X5D keyboard. And at the time, which is now all stuff that these young producers don't have to deal with, was called an Akai S2000 sampler, which was this device that was plugged into the wall where you had to load the, sa- the sounds in via CD-ROM. 
It's crazy. Yeah. And you could only have like eight instruments for freeze and overload. So <laughs> I learned, you know, from the old school like this. And, you know, we, he would, you know, we would do uh, lessons together. He would help so me. Was this all during high school? You built this up? This was all in high school. And this is what I was doing basically every day. And you were living with your dad at that point, right? Yeah, I was living with my dad at that point. I was also, you know, I had, you know, started my little small business stuff and I was learning, I was into investing. I was into these other things. Talk about that. What were you doing? What what small business stuff? What's Well, I, at the time I was doing like, you know, kind of like trading businesses, stupid stuff. I collected like baseball cards, matchbox cars. I was, I was, you know, I was, I was saving money. I was always good on the financial. I was interested in that as well. That was always something I was not an avid investor yet, but I was being, I, at that point, my father was always in my ear about the stock market, about real estate. We both know a lot about that. And we, and so I was always very interested in that as well. But I, and I also understood to be successful at music, you needed to have this sort of a, a sort of a hybrid of, you know, business you know, understanding and acumen along with artistic. Yeah. So I spent time really in both of these worlds. But yeah, at the time that I was in Santa Monica, I also stayed with my mother who lived near Venice in Mar Vista. And I had a very simple home studio for a while, staying in my father's place where I was working and making beats. They weren't that great. They weren't, they weren't mixed that well, but yeah. I was getting the foundation and the ideas of it. So, and what was in your mind at that point? Were you thinking like, this is like what I'm going to do? I'm going to start selling beats or was it just like, I love this. It's a hobby. No, and this is what's so deep. I still didn't believe in myself at this point. I, and it was very interesting. I was actually telling someone else's story. I had a friend at the time who I'm so close with. His name is Chris Harvey. He's a very talented producer as well. I went to high school with him. We went also traveled to Europe together. Chris's father, Steve Harvey, was a very famous producer who worked with all types of huge artists. I was also spending time with them and learning from them. And they were always telling me, you've got a great sound. you got to you know, keep it up. Keep this going. You're doing it. But I was honestly, at the time, I was very intimidated because I was like, well, I'm good. Chris has all these connections, all these industry relationships. I don't know if I'm going to be this successful because I don't have a, an industry music family. Yeah. And so believe it or not, I actually pretty much took a complete pause for music almost completely for Two, three years at least when outside that, of high school. Out of so, high school? When you yeah, yeah, once I got out of high school, I went to U of R, uh, studied finance and political science, and then I moved back to New York and, and really just worked. And I, I know you always had a financial and political mind, but you, so you graduated and you're like, if I'm going to go to college, I'm going to go study poli sci and finance. And what was your thought? What yeah, were you gonna get literally, yeah, I was actually thinking about being a lobbyist. For some time, and I was considering, yeah. and I was considering pre-law. I don't know if you remember. I was like, "Oh, I really understand politics. I have, I have some legal understanding, and I know business. Maybe I'll do this." And then I traveled, and I spent time in an internship in Sacramento with my poli sci class. And I realized, wait a second, this isn't what I want to do either. Like, this yeah. isn't the world for me. Though I still yeah. love politics to this day. I was like, "No, no, no, I don't want to go into government." So yeah. what happened was the biggest best thing that happened to me was that I actually went back to New York. And I worked and, you know, mainly did even ju just union work. I did have a small studio and I was at that point starting to do the music stuff again, very slowly. Like I built a tiny little studio. I was nibbling at it again. And at a certain point, I was doing a lot of work. I was saving money. And I actually was thinking, okay, now I want to start investing and doing my real estate stuff, which is why I originally was thinking about coming back to LA. But then I was like, well, wait, but what is the real reason I want to come back to LA? This was the phone call that changed it all for me. I called Emanuele, my mentor from high school, and I said, you know, Emanuele, I'm kind of in this life crisis. Where do I go from here? 
And it was exactly you have so much going on for yourself. You've been doing good in the East Coast. Why don't you come back to L.A.? And, you know, I'll get you a job. You can work for me as an assistant. I'm working on this new film, which is going to be very big. It's called Day After Tomorrow, which, as you know, yeah. ended up being this huge hit by Roland Emmerich. So I packed my bag. Oh, and the name that Emanuele was working for was? Oh, and Hans Zimmer. Yeah. Just a- <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, that I'm was before. Time. Yeah. yeah, no, 100%. So, even, yeah, that's important for you guys. So, Emanuele was actually in the Hans Zimmer crew for years. Yeah. But then he branched out on his own and he had this opportunity for me to come out and work with Roland Emmerich. And I was like, whoa, this is crazy. This is a huge opportunity. And he yeah. was like, yeah, you know, we'll get you back into the studio. And, you know, there's all these new things now. Now, there's a new version. There's something called Logic Pro. And you can have the sounds in your computer. And I was like, what? You're kidding me. Because like at this point, I wasn't even actually programming. I was just rapping and singing over beats that I had downloaded. Like, I was yeah. totally lost again with my music. Like, I was just wanted to do it, but I had no plan. So yeah. came back out to L.A., got a new studio, a simple one on my laptop. And it was like from there, it really started having traction. I went yeah. back to do more additional university. I went to Musicians Institute, where I went into the KIT program, Keyboard Technology. Yeah. And this is really where I suddenly like, boom, I'm back into music. I had this job working for Emanuele, which was incredible because it was like, I saw the pressure of the industry, what it really takes to work in film. And yeah. I was like, whoa, this is, a, this is a real space that I want to be in. Going back to Music Institute led me to my first opportunity to get signed to Bug Digital. And you remember we had that party, we got a limo. That was when I first got signed to Sony. And I believe yeah. it was 2009. And that was after I had gone to Music Institute. And from there, my relationship with Craig Roseberry took off, who was a, who was an, and, uh, both a manager and a writer for Black Eyed Peas. Mm-hmm. And that is what got me from being an amateur producer programmer who had a good sound to a professional producer who knew how to mix and edit records for professional release. How did that happen? What, did he introduce you to the right mentors or did he actually mentor like how did that happen with Craig? yeah so he great question so he heard my music my mix that i had done that got placed on the bug digital catalog and did he just heard it off the catalog yeah bug digital had like an internal catalog where you basically were charting it wasn't as big as like being on itunes or apple radio spotify but it was like you were kind of like charting inside of the sony network and they would send that out to a and r's to executives to people to hear who are the new producers coming up Craig yeah. heard one of two of my down tempo mixes for that and was like, I want to work with this dude. I like, I like his sound. Um, and the funny enough thing was he gave me a phone call and it was the first time when anybody, you know, at the time, you know, most producers, like we have a little bit of an ego. We think we have this great sound. We're used yeah. to everybody being like, yo, man, your beats are high. Because he was like, okay, you know, it's, it's all right. I like the beat, but your vocals are all over the place. We're going to need to do a lot of work here. And I was like, I was like, Totally offended, totally understand. I, like, yeah, I just signed to Sony. Fuck you. <laughs> yeah, I was like, who is this guy? Like, I don't even know. Then I started Googling him and I was like, oh, shoot. Okay, like, maybe I should just shut up and listen to this guy. It's like tons of credits, tons of stuff going on. And, I, and, 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 you know, so he flew out to L.A. I met him and a couple of his friends and we got this mix done. And from there, Craig started representing me and my sound. He helped get me an EP finish that ended up doing really well. It was one of my first releases called The Arrival. Um, and from there, it was really just a, a process of, at that point, it kind of had momentum. And I was starting to learn what it really takes to make records finish. Because one big mistake that producers and, and all musicians is like, you know, we can get into this place of just enjoying the sound and playing things to ourselves and our friends. 
But there's a big difference between that and having a commercial record finished and ready to yeah. actually put out and get traction in the industry. And that's what I needed to learn. Yeah. And so, and Craig helped you with all of that. Craig helped me with a lot of that. He was, yeah. he was, he was a fundamental part of that process for sure. He was a big fundamental part of that process. Awesome. Yeah. And so what, so you get this released. How did things change from there? Well, from there, what happened was I started using the credits that I had done from the rec records that I had done with, with Taryn and I had done these, the, the arrival and things. And I started getting bigger remix opportunities. The biggest one that dropped, there were two huge ones that dropped on my plate. One was the Katy Perry remix that I did of California Girl. That one, it didn't get picked up for the actual release of Katy Perry, but it did get picked up from all of her like remix fan pages and the Universal Music Group page. And that's, if you remember how I kind of blew up on Twitter at the time, you know, this was like the pre-Elon era of Twitter when it was like super on to be on Twitter. Yeah. So, yeah. So, um, so yeah. And that gave me, that actually started kind of like my big kind of following as like DJ Bander. And at the first time, then I started investing in like, I did a website. I started consolidating my social media. You helped me a bit in that time. I remember with a few things, I was starting mm -hmm. to try to figure out what I was trying to do. And so that whole process led me to kind of start doing EDM remixes. Okay. Yeah. Before that, I never really know much about house. And it was actually, um, one of the influences actually at the, at the time, my ex-girlfriend, Amanda, she was a mm -hmm. huge house music fan. She was exactly a great sound, a great production, but you really got to also make dance music. And then I was like, well, if you're going to be, a, if you're going to make dance music, you got to know how to DJ. So it was kind of like when it seems like, okay, shoot, I got to know how to make dance music. And if I know how to make dance music, I got to know how to DJ. So that's yeah. when the, 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 the sort of the pivot into DJ Bander happened. Before that, I was just Bander, this producer with not a lot of SEO, not a lot of foothold in the industry. And yeah. the DJ Bander pivot really helped me kind of like create this whole you know, branding for myself. And then Craig led me to a guy who I haven't spoken to in a while, who I really appreciate. Give a shout out to David Ireland. David Ireland was a huge guy in the industry who at the time, I believe founded BPM magazine, which was huge. If you remember in like nineties and two thousands, David Ireland took a liking to me and he got me signed to Soul Republic headphones. And that popped me off as a DJ because all of a sudden I was like in the mix with like, I was in the same league as like the Morgan Pages and the Skrillex, at least in terms of like the industry knowing me because I was with the same headphone company. Yeah. So they actually got me getting my first shows. I started doing like a bunch of events. You remember, I think you came, there was like a big rollout at, at Fred Siegel in Santa Monica, yeah. ton of events like that. And so from there, I started doing, getting more shows. I started doing some stuff in Hollywood and I had a run, which lasted from about 2011 to like the end of 2013, 2014, where I was doing all those festivals in the Central Valley. And yep. that got me also a ton of organic fans on my Instagram, my Twitter, because I was just doing regular, regular shows and playing remixes, really. Well, that's it was the part that I think a lot of people miss is like the ground, the grassroots work of becoming a, you know, musician and like getting out there to like crowds and getting in front of them and staying in front of them. Right. Like, you don't think that just everyone just becomes famous and you have these big followings and it's done. It's like, no, no, no. It's no way. No. Exactly. I mean, you know this. You're also an expert in the digital marketing field. I mean, it's a combination of the organic people understanding you, whether that's shows or whether that's going to events, red carpet things, and actually having a real presence out there combined with digital marketing. 
but it's also like, you know, having something out there, you know, a concise product that also gives you traction. And yeah. for a while I was really just, I went from being just like a beat maker with beats sort of scattered around all over the place to the solidified producer with remixes that were getting real numbers and real tracks. Yeah. yeah. And so 2013, you said you went through the Central Valley run and with this Soul Republic thing. Yeah. What's kicked off? Bring us to eight years ago. What, what started happening then? How did things progress? So from there, um, what really started happening was I started, you know, building relationships and some other brand deals from those festival things. I had a L'Oreal Paris feature. I was doing, I was doing like, you know, different magazines. I was getting featured, started building up my press and building up my notoriety slowly. It was, it was a slow build, you know, month after month took a couple years. As I was doing that, I started working on other records. The bigger record that I then dropped was The Arrival. Why that was a big deal for me was because instead of just being a remix producer, I was actually cutting and performing now real original music. That was yeah. my own beats along with my own vocals from my own artist. Before that, I was yeah. just like a remixer, which is cool, but that's yeah. what sort of separated me. And I was like, oh, wait, okay, no, he makes his own music now. He's not just this remixer, um, yeah. you know, and, you know, that process went on for a while. I started getting bigger opportunities. I worked and did a remix for Taryn Manning, who's a big actress on Netflix, oh, um, Orange is the New Black. And mm -hmm. she also had a big uh, DJ following and she was promoting me as well. And then I did a remix for John B, who's a Grammy winning R&B artist. John B promoted me. So I started having this sort of like, one thing after another that was like, it was slow and it, you know, enough, you know, we talk a lot about the build of success. It's it, like every one of these was like three steps forward and then there'd yeah. be a lull and it would be like a step back. And then there'd yeah. be another opportunity. It'd be three steps forward. You know, yeah. nothing happened overnight, but I did make a good relationship with somebody else who's very important. Who's Orlando Puerta. Orlando Puerta is a famous A&R agent who worked with like Michael Buble and the Taron Mannings and all of those. He started getting me more stems. Stems are the term for the vocals just by themselves that you yeah. can send out to producers. It's very hard to get those on big records, the real ones, not ones that have been stripped and, you know, mutated by YouTube, yeah. editors, right? Because those are super unprofessional. Also, they have, um, they're not whitelisted, meaning that if you put it out, it'll get taken down. So I was getting real stems that were not going to get taken down and were official and I had the permission to remix them. So, you know, you know, at this point, I only probably had about, you know, I had like a lot of Twitter followers, 50, 60K on Twitter, but I only probably had like, I think this is when Instagram first started coming out, probably only about five or 10K on Instagram, but it was, but it was growing. It was growing. And I would do things. I would use the headphones. So what, what is the importance of growing that following? Like, why is that? Why is having Instagram followers, Twitter? Well, as you're building. Yeah. You need to have a social media following, and it's not that every single one of those followers is going to be a super fan. The goal is, is that if you could have even for every hundred, you know, to 500 followers, even if just like 10 of them, five or 10 of them are really actually connected to you and are down for you, what that does is it always gives you a base level of momentum for whatever you're doing. And, yeah. and with the algorithm with Instagram, having that following is what's key, especially now. With even yeah. getting your post pushed to the top, you know, if you don't have organic traction on your stuff, no one is going to see your stuff, you know, yeah. and that's why you see, and that's why it's not just the number of followers, it's that they're, it's that they're real and that they're engaged. You know, you yeah. can see, you know, 
lot of people try to fake the followers, or fake the stuff, and it's only hurting themselves because no one's, it's not, if it's fake, no one's going to even see your post anyway. In fact, it'll be worse. Instagram will punish your account, as you know. So, yeah. so, you know, and then the following is also important because that gives you a community by which you can have other opportunities, whether it's remixing someone else's music, whether it's doing mixing and mastering, as you know, I'm also an engineer. So that gave me a lot of people would be like, yo, you know, Banner, I, how do I make, you know, I like how your track sounds. Like, how do I get, your, oh, I can, I can mix that for you. You know, I charge X amount for a mix. So having your following gives credibility and the credibility yeah. makes people want to DM you and ask well, you. I think that's an important point. Like to the money you made along the way, like, you know, you got some money from shows and things like that, but it really was continuing to remix and do production work as your sort of day to day, right? Like that was where yeah, it was. The shows paid a decent amount, but Hollywood shows pay almost nothing. Yeah. The festivals paid the most, you know, yeah. maybe those were a grand at the best, maybe two, yeah, but sure. I would be making that, you know, easily every week or better from either shopping beats, shopping mixes, doing yeah. other stuff at home, you know? And so, yeah, I always tell people in any field, there's always going to be some money that comes from a, re a residual of your actual talent. And then there's going to be the, the actual service that you provide. It really yep. comes down to a service because at the end of the day, a service is what's going to always keep you relevant. If you're just sitting yep. around waiting, you know, people's songs come and go. Artists is, artists is shine and their relevancy with their music comes and goes. But if you can do something and provide something at a good value and they like working with you, you'll always have work. You know, this is a, as a, yep. as a successful media guy and businessman. It's the same thing. It's like, you know, people trust you and they want, and they like your sound. It's like, oh, cool. Yeah. I want to have Bander mix my stuff. So you're absolutely right. Some money from remixes, some from shows, but a lot of it from at the time I had this, I started really scaling up my capital because at the time I, um, what I did is I had a st actual studio in the Culver City area and I was starting to do what were called like big mixtape executive productions, meaning I would work with rappers and R&B singers and get really decent budgets. And I was just really spending insane amounts of hours just just grind just sitting there clicking moving the audio clicking like laboring really it came from you have to be ready to labor at, at a certain yeah. point because you're not always going to be making money from like placements and syncs though i did make some money from that i did get some syncs and some independent films and i did get my music picked up in some catalogs but like what are you going to do in the meantime so in yeah. the meantime you need to have a you know a real legit way of connecting and actually monetizing and for yep. me at that point was from engineering yep makes sense so um moving forward as my brand got bigger i started actually learning how to take my brand authority and reputation and offer services both with mixing and mastering but then distribution through my sony connections with with the orchard and bmg and then later on, also doing my own marketing, music marketing stuff. Yep. Got it. And so as that progressed and you, again, you've had all those partnerships, like what was the sort of pinnacle of like, when you felt like I made this, this has been a success. I'm now known. I've, you know, I've done well. Like you, you always talked about the insecurity of it early on. So when did you feel like, yeah, I'm fucking this? that's a great question. I would definitely say that when there were two big moments in the beginning that really made my confidence much better and got and wiped out my insecurity. The first was working with Craig Roseberry. And him yep. telling me, I really do have it. Like, I really am a great producer. I just need a little bit of practice and training. Post on Zimmer, post signed to Sony. You then. Yeah, you even then. I mean, the Sony thing definitely was like, oh, wow, I'm, I have a great sound with beats. 
But even when I got signed to Sony, it's important for everybody to note, I only really got signed at that time as a professional instrumentalist. I just had beats. I had not produced anything professionally with vocals other than remixes. So yes, I was more confident then. But when I started working with Craig and I was cutting records, when like The Arrival came out and the remixes that I had done where I had really like merged and put the vocals over it, that's when I was like, okay, I'm really actually doing it. Because to be a good music producer... You got to be able to make the music and do the vocals. You got to have both. That's what really makes yeah. a good producer. If you're just That's doing beats, nothing wrong with that, but you're really a beat maker. You're not a producer. Yeah. It's kind of a difference. So, so that really helped. Of course, you know, getting people, you know, responding to me at festivals was really great and, and beginning to kind of get picked up on bigger magazines also helped me to feel much better about my sound and the direction I was going, you know? Yeah. yeah. So a couple more questions. Number one. Yeah. Uh, what's next? What's in the, what's in the future? What's, what's coming up next for DJ Bander? Yeah. So, so what's coming up next is, um, I'm rolling out more singles. I got a couple new tracks that I'm really dropping. I'm focusing on increasing my, my now, which has become a really big reach in terms of my distribution. You know, I've had several tracks that have now charted on iTunes. I've, where I've had a, actually just hit a million cumulative streams on Spotify, taking that to the next level and doing a full album. So I, I'm working on an actual full album release as well as a, a a series of singles EP. So when the album drops, I'm excited about that because while I'm now established as a single producer and remixer, the album work will really also help with garner more placements and more opportunities once I have a yeah. full album. So the album comes next and then, you know, continuing to grow Bander Productions, which has also become this music marketing slash label entity. And using that to, to in, increase my footprint by reinvesting the resources into more ad space and getting myself out there even more. So it's Got really it. just about fueling the cycle that I'm already building. Um, yep. I'd love to have bigger features, work mm-hmm. at bigger opportunities. And as the tracks get bigger, perhaps perform again at bigger festivals. Though I must say, I've done a lot of shows and I'm always down to do more performances. But, but interestingly, two things. One is you almost can gain more fans and more real listens to your music online now than you can yep. even from just shows. Because a lot of these shows, people are like, you're kind of like background music versus when you're on the big playlists, people are specifically listening to you and you can also, you can like actually quantify it and measure it. You can measure the yep. people listening. The other yep. thing is, you know, my dream is really to be more in the, placement sync world and do Netflix scores, all of those sort of opportunities and be kind of in a way, almost like a DJ shadow. So someone who may do some shows, but has a huge online footprint and a huge sync footprint. Yeah. Have you circled back? Obviously you still talk to him and well, but like with Hans Zimmer, like it feels like you've got an an entrance into that with a lot of credibility behind it. Yeah, no, definitely. Even well, he's been, is still a very close mentor of mine. We have actually projects in the works. We're interested in dropping our own kind of score albums um, at some point next year, which we'll use to place. And I've also gotten some newer relationships as well, direct to sync stuff that I'm, that I'm very excited about. I'm feeling really good about as well. So the Hans Zimmer thing is definitely in the background, but you know, what really is, is about is relationship with music supervisors. And that's what my team has really gotten a lot of traction on recently. Awesome. Um, So last question for someone wanting to pursue their dreams and like whatever that might be, if it's to be a DJ, if it's to be a musician, if it's to be a business person, whatever, what would be the one piece of advice you either wish you got or you did get that really got you along the way? Dude, I think the biggest thing that would be is that you have to two things. You got to believe in yourself and you have to love yourself. You got to really love your potential and, and, and you, you'd be surprised at how much time 
gets wasted on worrying. Worry less, work more. That's really all it comes down to. I mean, I've always admired you for that, Eric. You've always been very productive and always gotten lots of done. And, and I feel like we're similar in that sense. The one thing I wish is that when I was younger, and this is always hard because it's hard with art. You know, like all artists struggle with, you know, not having the support they want. But what yeah. really matters is like, is, is, you know, whatever it is, if you're trying to DJ, if you're trying to do music, care about yourself, believe in your, in your vision and your sound. And don't worry about trying to make something like someone else. Ask yourself when you listen to your music, would I listen to this? You know, yeah. learning to be objective is so important. Like, is this the best product that I can do? Is this dope? Not like what your mom thinks or your sister or your friends. They're all going to say your stuff's cool. You know, it's, it's really you and, tr and really mastering that inner ear and that inner voice for yourself. That's like, no, nah, I am dope and I'm going to continue this path, you know, because I talk about this a lot. I'm a big believer in avoiding suppression. A lot of times when you're talented or successful in any way or have anything special about you, there's going to be people that are triggered by it and are going to be a bit insecure by it. And you have to be careful with the, the way that they use language and the way that they use certain behavioral patterns to make you insecure inside and delay your, your true potential. And so yep. being aware of that and cognitive of that is, is, you know, cognizant, excuse me, is a huge element of what will help you to get more things done. So, you know, and just put out music, just finish products and get products out. That's really what it comes yeah. down to. The favorite line is just ship it, get it out. I love That's it. That's awesome. Just get it done, man. Yeah. Well, DJ Bander, this has been awesome. Thanks for coming on Hawk Talk. Eric, it's been really excited. I'm really excited for the release of the show. Absolutely. You've been listening to Hawk Talk. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars you think this podcast deserves. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.